Hour two of the Tuesday crew, Jake Schmid and Dylan Allen. We talked some NBA uh, free agency, potential acquisitions. We talked Rutgers football, some can we just talk, some locks. But let's bring it back to Rutgers. Let's talk some Rutgers men's basketball. We don't have a formal schedule set, but we do have somewhat of an idea of when they're going to be playing. They're going to be playing on November uh, the 20, obviously that Wednesday after Thanksgiving on the 20, Wednesday before Thanksgiving, the 25th. Uh, they do have that Syracuse matchup scheduled in December for the Big Ten ACC uh, challenge. But the uh, main thing begins to be seen, their expectations for this team are through to Ruth. The uh, Big Ten uh, conference had the media poll, the preseason media poll, say Rutgers was picked fifth to finish uh, in that when obviously they've picked to be in the bottom, you know, the bottom cellar dweller as we've uh, seen it, as we've seen it unfold. And we know that head coach Steve Peichel, time and time again, he always likes to say that this is, a, you know, they always rise above expectations. Um, you know, 249 votes for that uh, spot as well. And it's the first time they've been voted higher than 12th. Um, and Steve Feigl has been drilling that in the heads of his players for the past four years, that this is a team that has really kind of, you know, seen an awakening, has been coming back and staying relevant. Obviously, last season, 18-1 and at home, 20-11, and supposed to go to the Marsh Madness tournament. But you look at this team, Dylan, and they're still stacked. They still return most of their scores with Geo Baker, Ron Harper Jr., Montez Mathis, Miles Johnson, Paul, guys like Paul Mulcahy and Jacob Young. But they also bring in, you know, highly skilled freshmen like Cliff Amarui, the, the four-star freshman recruit they got from Roselle Catholic at center. Same height as Miles Johnson, 6'11". They also bring in uh, Mawat Mog, um, 6'7", forward, who can really stretch the floor. And also Oscar Palmquist from Sweden, another forward. What do you really make of all the, this team? Because it seems like this is one of the most the prolific freshman classes since when we had Ron Harper Jr. and Montez Mathis in that Caleb McConnell class as well. Yeah, I'm really excited to see the future of this program because of the the incoming freshmen, the, the incoming freshmen and like the, all the younger classes that we have. The depth is is it, it, we have never had this much depth before, at least to recent memory. So I'm I'm excited to see what Geo Baker. And guys like Ron Harper, that are the leaders of this team, what they're what they're gonna do to almost pump everyone up for these games because there's not gonna be any fans to pump them up. They're gonna have to, like you said, Steve Peichel's drilling this into the team. They're gonna have to play with a chip on their shoulder every single game and go out there as if they're underdogs, even even if they're not, because I think that's what they were like last year. Underdogs in every game, they went out there, they played their hearts out, and they won big games and they shocked the basketball world. Uh, so I feel like in order to keep the same. I guess same or similar results as last year. They're, they're going to have to play with a chip on their shoulder and not get too ahead of themselves saying, oh, we're playing Northwestern or, oh, we're playing this team, that team. That's not very good. We're, we're going to go in there. No, you have to go, you have to go in there as if everyone's saying you're going to lose and you're going to have to go in there and you're going to have to just beat these teams, beat the teams you're supposed to. And I think they have a good shot at repeating what they did last year, if not better, because I'm excited to see what Omari also brings to the table as well. Yeah, yeah, we look at guys like Amarui, 6'11", 240 pounds. He was ranked as the number 12 impact freshman already by NCAA.com, uh, and he was universally was on top 50 prospect lists in the nation. He was, um, you know, he was ranked 36 nationally by rivals. He was the seventh-ranked center in the nation, which is crazy, and Rutgers uh, landed him. Um, you know, he averaged 11.6 points as a junior, but he was ranked in the 50, top 50 by ESPN. He was a third-ranked prospect in the state of New Jersey, and Rutgers landed him. 
And, you know, this is the first big consensus top 50 high school prospect Rutgers has brought to uh, campus since Kadeem Jack in 2010, you know, before the Big Ten days when, like, Eddie Jordan was the head coach. And this is a big deal. He was also the New Jersey's Gatorade Player of the Year as well. So that's the first time, first, the Rutgers' first NJ Gatorade Player of the Year, which is a great uh, accomplishment for him as well. He was an All-American nominee from Sports Illustrated. And remember, he had all those offers from Miami, from Arizona, from Arizona State, from UConn, from Memphis, really over 20 offers. Those are top, those are good basketball schools. And he and, Ruck, and Kentucky as well, and Rutgers was able to land him. And he was always in the mix uh, for Rutgers. They were always high up on his list in his final 10, final five. And then obviously that's where he where he is. But I'm really interested to see how he really, how Miles Johnson kind of you know shows him the ropes because I'm sure those practice battles between Miles Johnson and Cliff Amarui are going to be great tests to how far this Rutgers, uh, these Rutgers big men can play. Yeah, and I feel like you said they're a very similar build in terms of height and weight, but I feel like he's a more offensive center than Miles Johnson. Miles Johnson had foul trouble last year. But he's more of a defensive center who gets rebounds, offensive and defensive, and he gets blocks, and he and he just and he's able to come up with clutch rebounds and score the occasional putback layup or whatever. He's not a guy that's going to take a jump shot. A guy like Cliff Omarui, I feel like he is a just an offensive talent, at least from the center standpoint. That's going to be a big issue for teams having to play against Rutgers because when Miles Johnson gets tired, they're going to put in a guy like Cliff Omarui who's the same, but he can score. Right, in uh, score at a at a better percentage than Miles Johnson. Plus, if you put them on the court at the same time, you have you have Geo, Ron, Paul Mulcahy, Cliff, and Miles Johnson. If you have that whole team on at the same time, it's going to be very tough for defenses to be able to guard Cliff and Miles Johnson, especially since Cliff can score the basketball at a, at such a uh, at such a great rate. Uh, it just I feel like he's going to be really really impactful for Rutgers because yes, we've had good centers over the years, but they really haven't been the most offensive centers we've seen. There are a lot of just big guys that can rebound and pass the ball back out to guys like Baker. So I'm encouraged to see how he'll how he'll incorporate in the offense this year, uh, and especially like guys like Paul Mulcahy, who really didn't shoot the ball too much last year. I'm excited to see him get more incorporated with him taking more shots this year as well. And it's also, you know, it's the first time since 1978 that they're entering the season as a ranked team. They're coming in at number 24 in the preseason AP poll. I think it's a little low for them, but also, you know, given what happened last season, they're, they're the, the committee and all the NCAA people are looking at it and saying, hey, they didn't make the tournament. They were obviously destined to if they made the tournament and it happened in an alternate world, they would have been higher than inside the top 20. But I think that's the right way to look at it. And you still have guys like Jacob Young and Geo Baker coming back. And you have you have a lot of skill at the guards as well. And Paul Mulcahy is a guy who looks like he's just gotten bulkier and he looks like he's slimmed down. And, you know, he's 6'6", uh, 210. He's really a, a kind of guard. He'll be the first guard off the bench probably if they, you know, you see a lineup with, like, Jacob Young, Montez Mathis, uh, Geo Baker, Ron Harper Jr., Miles Johnson. That might be your starting five. But then right off the bench, you have Paul Mulcahy. Right off the bench, you have um, Cliff Amarui, uh, maybe Mamadou Dukore as well as, you know, if you need some an extra forward. But you've got guys like Oscar Palmquist who will come in as well. But, Paul okay. He's probably going to be the sixth man off of Steve Peichel's rotation. Yeah, and possibly Jacob Jacob Young off the bench as well. Uh, you can't forget about him because I don't know who they're going to end up starting. They might want to put Mulcahy in there just because of his size. But regardless of who they decide to start there, 
we definitely have the depth to be competitive with these teams. Like, especially if Miles Johnson fouls out. Last year, we had to, we, we really didn't have anybody to come in and kind of just replace him. We had, I forget his name. On, I, I, I can't remember his oh, name. Oh, Shaq Carter. Shaq Carter. Yeah, he's a great bas- basketball player, but he wasn't an offensive threat. He wasn't like anything. No, he wasn't. He was just there. Just there. So a guy like Cliff, who can kind of step in if Miles Johnson's having trouble. That's a that's a big thing for Rutgers because then they can sit Miles Johnson knowing that they have a center that can do the same thing and do better offensively as well. So the depth is a really big thing for Rutgers that they didn't have last year that they're going to have this year. But you know what? Out of everyone that we've missed this year that's either graduated or transferred, I'm going to miss Yaboa. I, yeah. I really liked his presence on the court, just being able to hit that corner three when we needed it the most, being able to rely on a guy like that to just pass it out and him to just drain the three after three. That was very – I enjoyed his his spot and, like, what he did to contribute for the team. So I'm wondering almost as if who's going to who's going to take that role as, like, the kind of the corner guy that just takes the three-pointers when he's open. I don't know who they're going to put in that position, but that'll be interesting to see as well because I feel like that's a big thing for Rutgers is they don't really shoot three-ball too well. But they need a guy, They need at least one guy that can that can shoot it pretty consistently from the corner or like the wing or something like that. They can that they can just consistently pass to. Yeah, they definitely need somebody like that as well. And you might look at a guy like Ron Harper Jr. to do that. Um, you know, but from the three though, he was you know thirty five percent shooting from beyond the arc uh, for Harper. Jacob Young was about thirty five, thirty six percent from beyond the three. Like he was. He was probably the team's best leading, best player from the three. Um, you know, him and Yaboa, or Yaboa rather, was the best with almost 36%. So Yaboa is really the best. Then you have like Harper coming in, then Jacob Young, um, Caleb McCon or Paul McKay too. Paul McKay was uh, 33% as well. So you probably could see Paul McKay stepping up in that role too, or you could see a combination of him and Ron Harper Jr. Those, the only people that shot above 30% was Yaboa, Ron Harper Jr., and uh, Mulcahy. So you'll definitely see that. Um, I could see that happening as well. I think that that's the you know as a team though they shot thirty one percent, which isn't really isn't really very good. I think that's a and free throws too. They were how can we forget about the free throws? They shot below sixty five percent from free throws too. Yeah, I don't know how we forgot about the free throws. That was it was pretty pitiful last year. The the free throw, especially in close games, where you you had the game on the line, and if you if you if you made the two in, the game was over, and they would make one and make everyone nervous, and then give the team exactly. an extra possession and. Th- they have to definitely clean that up. Um, the free throws is a definite. It, I think honestly, that's a bigger bigger issue than the three point percentage because we haven't been consistently good at three point shots, and I feel like we are more of a score in the paint team. You got got you got the big guys that can drive in, and you have the guards that are exceptionally well at driving in and making and making crazy layups, right? So, I feel like that's just that having Yaboa out there was just like almost almost just like a nice addition to have, but it wasn't like their primary target to go to. So, But the free throws definitely have to get better. And it's not just the centers that are tanking that percentage. It's guys like Geo Baker, too. They're not very good at shooting free throws either. It's the guards, the guys that you know are supposed to be 80% from the line. They're more like 60s. They're in the 60s, lower lower 60s, maybe upper 60s. They're in that range, and that can't be, that can't be a thing going forward because you expect guys like that that can shoot the three ball like, make these crazy three-pointers for the win, but then they, they go up there and clank two free throws. That, that can't happen. That You have to be able to shoot free throws consistently. I, I That's a big issue for Rutgers, especially in close games, because 
at the end of the game, if they win or if they lose by a, a one bucket, if you look at the free throws they missed, let's say they missed 10, right? That's 10 points that they could have had easily to add back onto the score. So, But then the other team shoots like 90%. So you're like, okay, that's an obvious issue. And that was a reoccurring issue throughout the season. Yeah, it was. I mean, look, their leading free throw shooter from last season, he's not even going to be playing this season because he's doing a medical redshirt for his back injury. That's Caleb McConnell with 79% from beyond the charity stripe. Aquazia Ball was second with 78%, and you're not having him. So now Geo Baker's your top free throw your returning guy, and he's 77%. That's not – you want that well to be above 80 if you're a guard. If you can make those big shots, the crazy shots that he can make. Uh, Ron Harper Jr. was barely 70%. Uh, from the line, Jacob Young was 59. Yeah, that's and, crazy. And that's what I mean. He's a shooter too. Exactly. So you definitely and I'm not and, and and I know they definitely work on it in practice. That's not the issue. I'm just saying they have to get better at it and they have to figure out a way to do it because Rutgers is a team that's going to go into games against big school, big name schools like Michigan State. They're going to have to play tough. They're going to have to play close games and they're going to have to be able to make these free throws to put them over the edge because if you miss these free throws early on in the game, then you're playing in a hole and you got to come back. So that's just, that's the main issue I think Rutgers has to focus on. And that should not be, at least from the guards, Geo Baker, 77%. That's, we'll let that slide, but I would like to see it above 80% on a more consistent basis. But guys like Ron Harper, who are also good at shooting the ball, when you're shooting it 70, barely 70%, and Jacob Young, 59 or whatever you said, 59%. Yeah, 59. That, that, that cannot happen, especially when these guys are shooters. Like Miles Johnson having a thirty or forty percent free yeah, throws, 36. that's yeah. that's fine. He's a center. We're not expecting that. But guys like Geo and them that are consistently making shots, especially like the off balance ones, they have to be able to make free throws. Yeah, they have to. And Yaboa, you're gonna miss having Yaboa out there. He's one of your top. You know, he was one. He had a forty forty four percent from the uh, for field goal field goal percent as well. Same with uh, you know Jacob Young had that as well. But you know, you look at a guy like uh, like Paul McKay who shot fifty four percent. Um, on the floor in his first season with the team, and that's kind of impressive. Averaging, you know, 18 minutes a game, he got more minutes than Shaq Carter. He and he really did play, um, like pretty valuable minutes. You take out Caleb McConnell's 21 and a half minutes, he had 21 games started out of 31 total games played. He's out of the picture. El Quasi Abode's out of the picture. He basically started, you know, more than half, like 89 percent of the season, 90 percent he started. So you really gotta you gotta look at the numbers like that, and I think it's gonna be interesting to see like Montez Mathis returning starter, he's locked his spot up. Harper Jr. returning starter, Baker, Miles Johnson, those are kind of obvious going forward. But I, I would like to see you know Jacob Young didn't have any starts at all in 30 games played. I think he could be a guy that could step up, and you know if he's in the spotlight and we like he's so good on the transition game and he's fast and he's just gonna keep getting better. Yeah, and and you're right. He is very good on the transition game. Just getting that clutch steal and being able to just you know run up and just lay it in, stuff like that was how Rutgers was successful last year. They were able to just get a lot of a lot of turnovers and force a lot of points off those turnovers, and, and kind of just play great defense. That's what Rutgers is. They're a defensive team. They hold teams to minimal points, and then they just outscore them in any way they can. So, I, honestly, I don't think Jacob Young will be a starter on this team just because I think he serves a much better purpose coming off of the bench when a guy yeah. like Geo Baker's tired or, you know, even Ron Harper, you have him come in and just that presence is just great enough there. And uh, I I wanted to ask you, Jake, what do you think? What do you think that their starting five should be going into, you know, their first game? What do you, I guess, expect and, or what do you want to see? Who do you want to see starting? 
I don't think any of the freshmen are going to start just because Peichel's an old-school guy and he likes to stick to his rotations. Obviously, it's going to be Gio, Montez, and Ron. Those guys are locks. That's your core nucleus right there. All those guys basically started every single game, aside from when Gio Baker, you know, he 19 games started, uh, 28 games played. He had that injury. We we know what happened with that in the later downer in the winter portion of the season. But Ron Harper Jr. is definitely a lock. He's definitely manifested himself into getting the bulk of the minutes, the 28 minutes, the 28 minutes per game. But it's going to hurt not having a quasi Ebola out there. I think that's going to be, you know, a loss that Pykele's going to feel very soon because you got to all of a sudden you got to, you know, not rush the freshman, but you got to kind of, you know, expedite that a little bit, their process, because then you're going to put in guys like, you know, I know Oscar Pompkus, Mawat, Mog. Those guys are going to be pivotal for the uh, transition game. You're going to put those guys in who can make the deep ball shots, kind of filling the void that a quasi Ebola um, filling his void. And I could see them maybe getting some spotty rotations in if they play like a team like like Northwestern or a team like Nebraska. But if you're playing a team like Ohio State, I think you might want Jacob Young out there on the starting five, or you might want him to start out the season, have him with Montez, with Geo Baker, with Ron Harper Jr. and Miles Johnson. Um, ease Cliff into it too. Cliff and Pummel K are going to be your first guys off the bench, but if you even want to just tweak in, you know, subbing Young or Mulcahy, it doesn't matter if everyone stars. I think, you know, one of them off the bench is going to be provide a very valuable minutes and points too. Yeah, and I, I honestly, I, I what I would like to see, I think I think you're right, and I agree. They need to ease Cliff into this system and almost just into the starting role. Just they need to ease him into it. They can't put him right in and just throw him right in. They have to kind of let him watch Miles Johnson a little bit and exactly. then kind of come off the bench. Right. Honestly, I think you're right, Montez. Gio and Ron Harper are all locks to start because Montez Mathis is very good defensively as well, and Gio and Ron can score the basketball. Those three are locks. I think the fourth starter, for at least Miles Johnson, right? That's I think that's almost a yeah. lock too to start. Yeah, he is. So that fifth starter, it, 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 for me, it's between Paul Mulcahy or or even Cliff, honestly, because I could see them starting Cliff alongside with. Miles Johnson just to kind of have like a just two tall guys just in the paint, yeah, and just being able they to really lock it that. down. They, yeah, they really haven't, and I think it's because they just they I don't know they I don't know I just I feel like I think like that's what they should do. But if they don't want to go that route and put the two guys in at once, uh, then you then you might see Paul Mulcahy in instead, and you might have Miles Johnson. And then the when the bench comes in, you have guys like Jacob Jacob Young come in. Uh, Cliff, and maybe you see an occasional freshman, whether that be Oscar or Mawat Mag or or, or Mamadou Dekor coming in. It's going to be interesting to see how Peichel decides to use his bench just because of the amount of depth that we have. It's going to be interesting to see how he decides to use it. And Peichel's going to have a lot of time to play with his rotation. Last year we saw, you know, Gio Baker, Ron, Ron Harper Jr., Quasi Aboa, Miles Johnson, Montez Mathis. Like, you could see that as a starting five right there. But you could also see, you know, they start off with McConnell as well. You know, he's he was their best free throw shooter. Um, He kind of lacked the three. He was 14 of 50 from beyond the arc, so they didn't really put him much there. But it, it was good to see, you know, Montez, Gio, and Ron are the three guys that are your locks. And then you could throw in, you had Yaboa and Johnson. That was like your starting five last season. You throw at Yaboa, that's kind of like a big hole because Yaboa can stretch the defense and he can also play inside too with that um with that big frame of his. Like he can really we saw that at Stony Brook, like he can he can play well too. I think the 
the last game they played against when they beat Purdue um, in overtime, they did do Gio, Ron, Aquazi, Montez, and then they put Shaq Carter in just because it was like, you know, his final game. But if you look at that Maryland game when they upset number nine Maryland, 78-67, their final home game, that was, again, yes, yeah, same lineup because they kind of put in Shaq Carter over Miles the end of that season because of the foul trouble that Miles Johnson had really gotten himself into. I think that the fouls that he had over the total, or he, he fouled out like a couple times during the season. It was very, it was, it was very notable that he, but he had 78 fouls over the course of the season. Yeah, that's a big issue. Yeah, and the year before that, he had 83. 83 is a lot. Like, that's that, a lot of fouls. That's crazy. And I, yeah, like he, he really did have those games. Like, you know, he fouled out against Michigan State when they, they lost in that game. That was that close game back in December. They were close, but then Michigan State pulled away. That was their first Big Ten game of the season. But then you, you look at Miles Johnson's foul numbers, he usually gets hits three or four, like four against Wisconsin, um, you know, three against Penn State, four against Purdue. He's hit four, I think, at least like six times. And that's kind of – you're looking at Pike and you're not happy about that. And you got to – you really – I think they really have to teach that, you know, with Miles, you got to make sure he doesn't like – you know, that like – He's always in the big man, and his hands are always up. But he doesn't put his hands back sometimes when you're near the foul. Like he's always, you know, he hits the player's neck or hit the, like their arm. Or the, he always hits the wrist. I feel like when they go up in the paint too. Yeah, he's definitely got a. I mean, as a center, you're gonna get fouls. That's that's a given. That's the that's the position where you get the most fouls. But to be getting like four fouls every game and potentially fouling out, and then having the having to go to Shaq Carter early. Exactly. In the game is an yeah. issue. And we could see that this year too. And maybe it won't be as big of an issue because you have a guy like Cliff that can come in or even Decor, who isn't that bad either. You could see a guy like that come in and just play a role for a little bit. Uh, but that that is an issue for Miles Johnson. And I think now that he's been playing a lot more, that that's going to be cleaned up. I, I think that honestly, I think he'll improve on that. And I think, um, I, I think that'll be, I don't think that won't be an issue this year. He's definitely going to have fouls, but, and you mentioned that Michigan State game, right? And you, and you mentioned how it was close. And then at the end, Michigan State pulled away, right? Yeah. If you look at the free throw numbers in the first half, Rutgers had only two free throws and they went over two, right? Right. In the second half, they went 13 for 17. So in that, so in total, they shot 68% from the line as a team. And you look at Michigan State, First half, 8 for 10. Second half, 14 for 17. They shot 82% as a team. That's the difference between winning programs and, and programs that are trying to make them make their ways up in the rank. That is the difference right there. The fact that they had they had, uh, they had had 22 points off of free throws, and they won the game by 12. So And we only had 13. So that's, that's the difference for Rutgers right there. I, I, the free throws was a big issue, like we said earlier. So I feel like if they can, you know, make that better, they can definitely hang in with a lot of these higher ranked teams, like a guy, like a team like Michigan State. Like I honestly, if we played Michigan State last year at home, no doubt in my mind we were beating them, no doubt, because in that game you're right, they did play them pretty close at halftime. It was 33 to 28. Yeah, we were down by five points, and and then you look at the second half totals. We gave up 44. They gave up 37. It's very evenly matched games. And with our home court presence with the fans, I feel like we would have beaten Michigan State if we played them at home last year. And Michigan and Rutgers did better points off turnover wise too in that game. They were up fifteen to twelve. The bench completely outscored Michigan State. You know, thirty seven to twelve. You had really guys, 
you know, stepping up in that game, you know, your leading scorer was Yaboa. He came off the bench in that game. It was Harper, Mathis, Baker, McConnell, and Johnson. They're basically their same lineup from the season before. That's what they used. But then you have Jacob Young with 12 points, a quasi ball from 17. And that's where I see uh, your point, Dylan, where Jacob Young off the bench, you know, three assists off the bench in that game, a steal. He was six of seven from the charity stripe in that game. He had four total rebounds as well. So that's, you know, a really good spot to see him. In. And that was in 19 minutes. He only played 19 minutes, scored 12 points. Yeah. And. Back to what we were talking about with Yaboa, you said he scored 17 points that game. That was the that was the team leading scorer, and the fact that he's not on the team this year, it, it just begs the question again to see who's going to fill in for that role, because he shot in that game six for nine from the field, two for three from the from three pointer, and three for three from the line. Like, that's a great stat line right there of shooting, and I'm just wondering who they're going to find to almost replace that role because. As you can see, 17 points, I mean, and Geo Baker only had four. So if you have a game where, J- where Geo only has four, who's going to be that guy to step up? That's the big question. And if you look also, Miles Johnson fouled out in that game as well. So uh, to, to go back to our foul conversation in terms of Miles Johnson having trouble, you, you can't foul out in games like that because then you put it on Shaq Carter. He, he only played 15 minutes, Miles Johnson, that game, and he was fouled out. So... When you have a guy like Shaq Carter that's going to come in and play the rest of that game, it puts a lot of pressure on Shaq Carter just because he's not, he's not, we all know he's not as good as Miles Johnson. So if Miles Johnson can clean up the foul trouble, then I think Rutgers will be in a good spot. Yeah, yeah, you definitely look at it that way. And Rutgers, they, last season, they were great. They really, that Seton Hall game, I think, was the big point in the schedule where people are like, wait a second, like 68 to 48 win over, you know, a good Seton Hall team. And that's kind of where people were thinking, okay, this is a good team. Maybe Rutgers can make some noise um, as well. In that game, though, Ron Harper Jr., 18 points, six boards, one block. That's a good team right there. But then, you know, Miles Johnson, 13 rebounds. He's more defensive, as you said, than offensive. He had eight points in that game, too. But he also had two blocks, 13 rebounds, two blocks. That's a good stat line too. Matas Mathis is a guy who can get rebounds. That's good to see. That's good for Pikel's rotation. He had five boards in that game. I think Miles Johnson was one of the top guards on the Scarlet Knights who actually brought hauled in um rebounds. Uh Matas Mathis. Yeah, he averaged almost four rebounds uh a game. Ron Harper Jr., he averaged almost six. And I think that's gonna be a kind of guy you can look at to help out with Miles Johnson. That's kind of why they've stretched Harper, you know, to that three four spot now too. Yeah, and that's another great point you brought up about the rebounds because I feel like that was a great re- that was a big reason why Rutgers was successful last year, um, being able to get those rebounds and create second chance opportunities for guys like Yaboa to hit the three pointer in the corner when he's wide open because everyone runs into the paint for the ball. That's where Miles Johnson really really sticks out because he'll get the rebound over three guys. He'll find Yaboa and Yaboa will hit the three. If you look at that game against Seton Hall too, Rutgers out rebounded Seton Hall forty six to twenty nine. So wow, the fact and, and yeah, exactly. And Seton Hall has like two seven footers on their team. Yeah, they do. So the fact that they were able to out rebound them and and countless other teams as well. That's another big thing that Rutgers was very good at last year, just getting rebounds and being able to create second chance opportunities for guys like Yaboa to sh- to hit the three. <laughs> and not to say it again, but Yaboa in that game, fourteen points. 
eight rebounds, two assists. He shot three for five from three. So like I've been saying, it's going to be, I'm interested to see who's going to fill in that role for the three-point kickout because that's basically what he did, and he was very good at it. And I wish we had him for more than one year uh, because he w- he was honestly, he was very good at that, and it, and it was very good for Rutgers, a team that wasn't very good at shooting the three ball. Yeah, and here's the other thing that's you know that stands out to me, Rutgers from the defensive side, you know, about their opponents, you know, they held their opponents basically from beyond, from beyond the arc to 31%. That's pretty good. Field goal percentage, yeah. 38%. Very well. The team was playing above that. But the three-point percentage, that concerns me because they're both very similar. 31.3% for the Scarlet Knights. 31.1% for opponents, especially with teams like Michigan State, like Iowa. And Iowa is – I think Iowa is going to be the toughest opponent this season with Luca Garza being named, like, Big Ten preseason player of the year and a guy like Joe Wieskamp who had that crazy shot off that backboard a couple seasons ago or, like, on the corner. Like, you can't even, like, see the hoop and he just nails it in. That's going to be a team that Rutgers is going to have to really compete with is Iowa. And I think, you know, looking at that schedule, you're obviously going to be playing the, you know, Big Ten focused this season, you know, but Illinois is a team that's picked first in the Big Ten media poll, then Iowa, then Wisconsin, then Michigan State. We've beaten, the Rutgers has beaten Wisconsin at home. That was one of their first big, that was their first Big Ten win of the season last year. Um, Michigan State, you know, they played them close. We've talked about that, but you look at a team like Illinois, and with um, they have a really, really, really good team. I think Illinois is like one of the best, um, one of the best basketball teams like in the country. And they're supposed to be they clock in at number eight uh, in the AP uh, poll. They have guys like uh, Trent Frazier, who's a really good senior guard, been playing very well. Ayo Ayo Desunmo, their junior guard, he's supposed to be you know on all these national watch lists as well. Kofi Coburn, uh, Georgie uh, Bashanishvili. They're very, very well rounded, and I think that Rutgers is they're like in the near their fifth right now, projected to be their top five. That gets you a bye regardless, or so in the Big Ten uh, tournament. But the one thing that really could, you know, if they show up against Illinois and Iowa, who knows how far this team can go? Yeah, and I think you're right. Iowa, I feel like should be a bigger a bigger test than Illinois, hundred percent, only because Luca Garza it was just so was just so good last year, especially when he played Rutgers. He had 28 points and 13 rebounds. What was the score of that game? 85-80. It was it was it was close. That was in uh, Iowa, right? Right. And Ron Harper dropped 29 points, nine rebounds, and no assists. Yeah, he competed. He looked like the national, like the Big Ten Player of the Year in that game. Harper, like he did, he outperform Garza. Yeah, he had more points and four less rebounds, but similar stat line. Yeah, similar, but. He also shot for six for six around Harper from the free throw line, which is also very encouraging, and ten for fourteen from the field, which is good. But yeah, Luca Garza, I feel like that's the best player in the Big Ten for 100%. sure, and he's going to be very difficult to guard because, as you know, he can shoot pretty much everywhere on the court, three pointer inside, he could do layups, dunks, he could, rebounds, he could do it all. So that's going to be a big test for Rutgers. But I'm also inter- interested to see maybe if Cliff almost creates an impact there, and and he finds a way to defend Luka Garza at least a little bit better than how we did last year. You know, maybe we drop those points to 20 instead of 28, maybe, you know, 19, something like that instead of close to 30. And I, I'm just interested interested to see that. And Illinois, in terms of Illinois, the game last year, I, I believe we played them home and away. We won the home game. We lost the away yeah, game by three. It. And split that, split home, that away game, they almost won in Champaign, Illinois, too. That was close, but then DeSumo and Trent Frazier like, and Kofi Coburn completely destroyed it. Yeah, 
Kofi Coburn had 17 rebounds in that game. Yeah, so yeah, he, that, was a, he, he was a beast. Yeah, he had a monster game. He crashed the boards pretty well. Uh, I think, that, and the difference was, take a guess what the difference was in that game. It was free throws, right? Uh huh. There you go. You guessed it. In the first half, Illinois six for eight. In the second half, ten for eleven. Yeah. Rutgers one for four, and then two for four. That's what cost them the game. Wasn't it that game in the final like eight minutes or so? Didn't wasn't Johnson in foul trouble, and they had to they had to deal with all those free throws, and Rutgers couldn't make a free throw like that would have like they would have pushed it to overtime. I think. Yeah. Miles Johnson had four. Four fouls and only played 13 minutes. Yeah, it was all, I thought, was it Shaq Carter they put in? Shaq Carter played 17 and Decor played nine. Yeah, they even put in Decor, eh? Yeah, so that was an issue. He he got off to a slow start and they just benched him and they put in Shaq Carter. But that game, they lost 54 to 51. Yeah. And they missed five free throws. That was a painful game. Missed five. And, and it was just a defensive battle from start to finish. Uh, and I think with the depth that we have now, It'll definitely help us, I guess, when we play them this year. Um, Jacob Young in that game had 16 points. Yeah. Coming off the game. bench. He shot 14 shots, 6 for 14, How 4 did, uh, for 7 How did Montez Mathis do? Montez Mathis, 5 points, uh, 2 for 9 from the field, 1 Ooh, for 3 he from was the cold. field. Yeah. He had 5 defensive and 1 offensive rebounds. So he had 6 in total, 3 fouls, 3 assists, no blocks. He had 1 steal, though. So, But Montez isn't the most offensive guard. Right. He's just a, a primary defensive guard. Yeah, he is. So... It'll definitely be interesting Interesting to see how we play against these teams. Um, and Kofi Coburn and the Sonmu, we all know what they bring to the table. Like you said, they're all up for like national awards and stuff. Uh, and Illinois is a top 10 ranked team right now. And I'm so, I think Rutgers is a little low with 24, though. I think that they should be probably top 20, maybe like a 17. I, th- I feel like that's where they should be, but who knows. Anyway, but, but Rutgers definitely has played well. Every game, and if you look at the game uh, against Maryland too on the road last year, they lost fifty-six to fifty-one. Uh, the difference of that game was Maryland shot eighty percent from the line. We shot sixty-six. We missed two, so it's not like that would have won us the game. But still, just not being able to hit those free throws was a big issue for Rutgers, and uh, I feel like that's just that, that's just the, that that has to be fixed. Otherwise, you're just you're, in games you're going to compete in, you're just going to struggle down the line, and you're going to lose by two points every time. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely going to. It seems to be that way. That's the thing that Rutgers really has to change is that those ticky tacky fouls that they give up too. And you're playing teams like Iowa. You know, Garza averaged almost 24 points per game, and he's he's incredible. And that's some guy you cannot, you have to defend against. You know, Rutgers they have they have the I think they have the versatility and the length now to contend with guys like that and they have the bench and stuff, but what what's the biggest improvement you need to see from the returning guys? We talk about Johnson and stuff, but what offensively do you think has to change for them to, you know, be at where they're supposed to be, where they're projected to be at the top five? Well, they definitely have to find somebody like Akwasi Yaboa and, and find someone to fill in that role. Because he was a guy that would come in and shoot five threes a game and would make two or three of them and would finish with 10 to 15 points every night. That's something that was clutch for Rutgers because, as I said before, with Miles Johnson able to get those rebounds and kick it out to a guy like Yaboa to hit the three in clutch times during the game, that role definitely needs to be filled. And I don't, it'll be time will tell who they decide to do, who they decide to fill with that role, but that's definitely key for them. And a guy and guys like Ron Harper and Geo, this is going to sound pretty pretty obvious, but they're definitely going to have to continue the offensive success that they had last year. Right. Specifically, Ron Harper, because I feel like Geo, 
He's not the guy that'll put up 30 points a game or even 20, but he'll be there and he'll be an all-around guard with rebounds, assists. He'll make the clutch shot. He'll find the open That's guy. That's the big thing, the clutch shot. Clutch shot. But Ron Harper, I feel like, is the primary scorer on this team. Yeah, I would agree. In the game against Illinois, that I just, or that I just, uh, this is the one where they won by almost 20 points, 72 to 57. Yeah, yeah, at home. At home, he put up 27 points and shot five for five from three. With yeah, he six was rebounds. on the money. Yeah, so. When he turns it on, he doesn't turn it off, too. Like, he, he's a very versatile wing, too. Yeah, and that's going to need to continue for Rutgers. If they want to compete in these games where they're going to get out-rebounded, they're going to need to be able to shoot the three-ball and, and not have to go to the, the paint every time because they can't shoot the three-ball. As soon as you're able to shoot the three-ball consistently, it's going to get a lot easier for Rutgers down low against teams like Illinois with Kofi Coburn and stuff like that, and Luca Garza even. So those are the takeaways. Find somebody to fill in Akwasi Yaboa's position in terms of like the three-point guy to kick it out to, and then Ron Harper and Gio have to just continue their offensive success and, and just find a rhythm and just ride with it. And then another a key, I guess you could say, is incorporate your, incorporate incorporate um, Amari in this offense. I want to see him score points. I don't want him just out there for rebounds and kicking it out. I want to see him be a facilitator down there being able to score points and and almost like out rebound guys like Kofi Coburn and Luca Garza and just you know provide a force down there like Miles Johnson does, and I just want to see him score points. That's what Rutgers needs to do. Yeah, that definitely is what Rutgers needs to do. Final nine or so minutes on the WRCU crew Tuesday edition, Jake Schmid and Dylan Allen. It's time for rapid fire. We talked about a lot of stuff, but we'll start off with some baseball news. The LA Dodgers expect Cody Bellinger to be ready for spring training. He underwent successful surgery uh, earlier today to repair that right shoulder. He disclosed when he celebrated his home run in game seven of the NL National League Championship Series. Uh, He'll start rehabbing in Arizona in the coming weeks, and he should be ready for training camp. He had 12 home runs this season. He finished with a .239 batting average and 30 ribbies, but he was still part of that Dodgers championship team. What's really, you know, we talk about the the health of the players, especially during the pandemic and during um, all this surgery and stuff. Do you think he'll go back to form after he got his surgery on his shoulder that he initially dislocated? I, I think it all depends on when the MLB decides to continue this next season and I guess if they're going to do a bubble-type format again because you see this with the NBA. They're planning on starting Christmas time, like around Christmas, and that's a month or so away. So if the MLB decides to have baseball start in like April when it or, Mar- or like late March, early April when it normally does start, I don't know how severe this shoulder injury is, but... Honestly, if it's reports are saying that he'll be ready for spring training, so then I assume he'll be ready for the regular season. But again, that all depends on when the actual season plans to start because no one knows. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. It's uh, it's it's very you know it's one of those things you really try to keep an eye on too um, as well. But something we mentioned you know earlier, I want to talk about again. You know, Chicago Cubs, their architect from that championship, Theo Epstein, he steps down. Um, now Jed Hoyer is in charge of his place, and Epstein said that he anticipated remaining on the job for at least one more year. His contract was set to expire in 2021, 20, uh, but he helped to snap two of the longest droughts between World Series t- 
titles all time with the Red Sox in 2004 and then repeated that in 2016 with the Cubs. Um, this, you know, he was a big executive as well, n- notorious in baseball circles for, you know, the nitty gritty details and the way that he built his teams. What do you think this means for Chicago going forward? Cause they're always a playoff contender. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see how they deal with their stars like Chris Bryant or Rizzo or, you know, even, even, um, uh, Javier Baez. If they, if the new, if the new president of the baseball operations decide to maybe get rid of the, one of those guys uh, that could potentially change up how we look at the at the Cubs in the coming years um but yeah I mean he did he did a great job in in like you said in the in Boston and in Chicago breaking those streaks and and winning championships but uh there are a lot of contracts on the Chicago's books right now that are questionable when you look at John Lester's contract when he when he signed that deal with them I don't know how much money it was but it I could tell you this much it was a lot of money and I'm sure if you're a Cubs fan you're looking at that and you're kind of shaking your head saying we still have to pay this guy. So as of October 30th, 2020, or I don't know when he, six years ago, he signed a six-year, $155 million contract with the Cubs. So that was a, that was a big burden for them to, I guess, have to pay every year because he, he he's definitely not the same John Lester that they, that they signed six years ago, but... Uh, honestly, I don't know who they're looking at hiring and replacing him, but I think the main main point here is just you could potentially see one of their big name stars depart, get traded for for uh, for some nice prospects. We don't know. We'll see. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something to you know to really keep an eye on as well. There's a lot of stuff to unpack with the uh, you know the MLB as well. Um, Mike Clevenger also is going to be having Tommy John surgery after re-signing with the Padres. He's going to miss uh, all of next season. Uh, he just reached; they just reached an agreement with the Padres with him for a two-year, one eleven point five million dollar uh, deal, and they got him in that blockbuster trade with the Indians back on August thirty-first. Uh, that in hopes of leading him to the Padres in the playoffs, but then he exited his final start. What's the really big takeaway here to unpack with Clevenger and the Padres and the direction the Padres are going in? So is that a contract extension? Yeah, a two-year contract yeah. extension because I believe he has two years left under his deal from Cleveland. So right, essentially, it's a three-year, a three-year deal for him with the Padres because he's not going to play this year. So um, I think this is obviously you traded away all those prospects. You needed to sign Mike Clevenger, otherwise that was just a waste uh, for trading for him because you gave up a lot for him. So, uh, and you gave up a lot elsewhere too. So. I think this is very big for San Diego because they need the pitching to definitely survive in the in the National League because you have guys like Scherzer, DeGrom, and you have all those guys in the Dodgers like Kershaw, Walker Buehler. You're going to need pitching in the National League. I feel like the and the American League is built up on offense and the National League is built up on pitching. I feel like that's the difference between the two divisions. So if you're a team that's in the NL, and especially in a division with the Dodgers, you're going to need all the pitching you can get because who knows, maybe you'll steal an extra game in a three-game set. You'll win two out of three instead of one out of three every time you play them, right? So I feel like this needed to happen specifically because they gave up a lot for to acquire him, essentially. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, that's definitely, you know, something to look forward to. Um, definitely one of those teams that is kind of make its way back, try to make its way back um, to the um, – to the postseason as well. That's also a steal too. Yeah, two it is. years, eleven million dollars, eleven and a half. That's that's 
They, so they're not even paying him a lot of money, and um, that, and that's very encouraging to hear too from uh, from I guess an upper management standpoint because you're signing Mike Clevenger to a two year deal and you're only paying him you're only paying him like six mil a year, which is which is nothing. So that's also another positive of the signing too. They were able to get it for a cheap price. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the they're saying now that the Houston Rockets are willing to get uh, uncomfortable with James Harden and Russell Westbrook. They feel no pressure to trade either one of them, regardless of their desire for first starts with different uh, franchises. According to ESPN, the the it's that's an interesting take right now. So they there is now a somewhat momentum going forward um, for Harden. They do want a steep return though for Harden, and it you know. Houston doesn't feel obligated to deliver Harden to the Nets, his preferred destination. You know, I've heard the Sixers have come up as well, but this is, you know, Houston's going to want a big haul for Harden, regardless of where he goes. Yeah, and I don't blame them. He he's worth he's worth a lot of picks, players. He's worth a lot. That's their franchise guy. And uh, from a management standpoint, from Houston, I'm not shocked at all because at this point, they still want to be able to compete, and they have these guys under contract still. And they might just tell him, hey, listen, we're going to trade you eventually, but we want to be able to keep you guys for the, the contracts that we originally agreed on years ago. So, because don't forget, the, the Rockets gave up a lot to get Russell Westbrook, too. They don't want to just trade this guy after one year. They they see a potential future of a couple more years between Harden and Russell Westbrook possibly competing for a title, although I don't think it will happen. No. I think it was necessary for them to keep these guys just to keep their franchise relevant for the next coming years, and then they'll eventually trade them. But um, I'm not shocked at all because management is has all the leverage here because they have them both under contract, and they can complain all they want. But at the end of the day, it just comes down to the management's decision. Yeah, definitely. You know, Westbrook averaged 31.5 points per game and almost eight rebounds, you know, over the shortened season. Before the, this was before the season, uh, excuse me, and he shot almost 53% from the floor. So that's really good numbers there. But the Rockets, they did get, uh, they traded uh, Robert Covington to the Trailblazers. Uh, they agreed to trade him uh, for that. They have number 16 pick in Wednesday's draft. That'll be interesting to see how that develops. But we are out of time here on the crew. This was the. Tuesday edition of the WRSU crew, Jake Schmid and Dylan Allen saying have a good night.